Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 1. You had, didn't get a, perhaps you forgot your copy of the Bible at home or don't have one. We have plenty of extra copies in the back. Does anybody need a copy of the scriptures? Just one down here, Tony. Anybody else? Very good. All righty. Because Psalms is one of those easy ones to find. You just kind of stick your fingers, you know, in the middle and open it up. And usually you're going to end up in the book of Psalms. Um, I know your hearts were encouraged by Laura and Gabriella's song, Theme of Grace. Uh, think of uh, the, the church when Jesus came in grace and truth. Uh, there's something about grace that the local church seems to understand. And I'm not saying more so than all of the other different people who were saved in the Old Testament and things, but having a, a historic verifiable event that is the absolute demonstration of the good grace of God at the cross and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We truly do possess grace in a way that saints of old did not. And, uh, and all of that, Pastor Steve, led us in song. I hope you worked up a good sweat. You know, I don't know, some of these you played basketball. And if I did not work up a good sweat in the pregame, the game would go terrible. And I thought, well, there's one time I thought I'd just try not to work up a sweat and save my energy. And I was all cold and clammy, and I tried to get out and play with cold and clammy hands. Well, worship is kind of the same way. You've got to work up a sweat, you know, if you're really going to do it well. And so I hope you worked up a sweat in those songs and really lifted up your heart and your voice to the Lord as best you could. Remember, he's our audience pastor, reminds us of that all the time. Uh, and uh, so we trust he not only was pleased with what he heard, but what he saw in our hearts this morning. And uh, so what a joy, what a joy to sing those truths, just unbelievable. Um, so we have Psalm chapter 1 before us here this morning. I'm going to read that, and you read it aloud as I read, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll see what the Lord has from us from this text this morning, okay? So Psalm chapter 1. I have headed uh, two ways of life contrasted. Uh, I don't know what your Bible has at the head, but those are always helpful for you studiers of the Word of God. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever it does, he prospers. Period. It's a good place to put a period. Now as the psalm or Hebrew poetry often does, it offers a contrast. There's a lot to be learned in contrasts. Verse number four, the wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. 
but the way of the wicked will perish. The truth that I want to leave you with tonight, or this, this, this afternoon, sorry, we're, usually we're preaching in the evening. This afternoon, as you walk away from here, is this simple truth. It is this, that your relationship to God's word determines your state of being. Your relationship to God's word determines your state of being. You know, there's all kinds of counterfeit uh, streams or sources or fountainheads that claim they can help you with your state of being. And yes, I call them counterfeit because there's only one true source. And the psalmist gives us that singular source of the stabilization of your state of being, and that is your relationship to the Word of God. So we're going to talk about that. We're actually, God's going to talk about that, and we're going to try to share what He says. So let's look to the Lord for a word of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. It truly is our precious treasure, the most precious treasure that we have in hand. As the church, we value it more than anything. It is sufficient. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is the sole rule of our faith. And more importantly, hopefully, of our practice. It is what we seek to defend, and it is what we seek to live. And we thank you so much for the Bible. Uh, Lord, I pray that for those who have never entered into a relationship with God's Word this morning, that they would hear from heaven, that the Spirit of God would convict their hearts of their condition this morning. They are, in fact, in the company of the wicked. And for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior tonight, or this, this, this afternoon, that they would be, this morning, that they would be encouraged and reassured. They are in the company of the righteous. That they would assess their state of being as the Word of God assesses their state of being. And that they would live in light of that assessment. So Father, I pray you'd help us to these ends this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it has well been said, I think, uh, that the Psalms are inspired, and what we mean by that, uh, it's a technical term, they're in the Holy Spirit inspired. They are inspired responses of believing human hearts to God's revelation about Himself. I believe that's why the Psalms are so beloved, because they put in words a lot of the challenges that flow out of God as he revealed himself as he reveals himself to us in his word you know you know in the rest of scripture god reached down to man but in the psalms believers reach up to god and in 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 sort of a, a emotional response again to god's self revelation in his word the psalmist may praise God for justice and mercy on the one hand, while on the other he wrestles through the paradox of God's holiness and sovereignty existing simultaneously with sin and death 
How do those things come together? Well, the psalmist gives voice to that. And, 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 and he helps. So I would say the reason why the book of Psalms is such a treasured repository of truth for the church is because the psalmist is just like you and I. Just like you and I. So in these paradoxes, where is relief to be found? Well, sprinkled throughout this book are psalms that are classified as wisdom psalms. Wisdom psalms. You might want to write right above Psalm 1. This is a wisdom psalm. And it also is classified as a teaching psalm. It's a didactic psalm. Uh, this is its classification, and this is how it functions. Psalm 1 is this kind of psalm. These psalms lay down law upon which God's governance of the universe rests. It is in these that the believer must learn the wisdom that it has to offer and progressively find the comfort that God int intends for us to have as a result of it. In other words, God's very interested uh, in relationship to his self-revelation through the Bible, he wants your heart, your mind to be uh, uh, relieved and your souls to be comforted. And as we arrange our hearts and minds along the expression of these wisdom psalms, we will find comfort. It may not smack us immediately as being very comforting, but these are the intended means by which God wants you to find comfort. And you can, in fact, find true and real comfort, lasting comfort. This is an inspired source of comfort for the believer. In Psalm 1, the psalmist examines the question of humanity's state of being. Humanity's state of being. To say that mankind's current state of being is in crisis, I think we would agree, is not overstatement. It is simply the truth. Perhaps your state of being is in crisis this morning. And if it is, you've come to the right place. And you're about ready to hear the truth, the comfort, the unique comfort that can settle progressively your state of being. Wisdom in this psalm illumines us with this truth. We've already mentioned it. Your relationship to God's word determines your state of being. To demonstrate this truth, the psalmist contrasts two classes of individuals. Two classes of individuals. And it's not hard to see. Uh, the, the first of those is the righteous. The second is the wicked. So he examines, first of all, the state of being of the righteous. If you're taking notes this morning, that's our first point. The state of being of the righteous. This psalm is a little different in the sense that we often approach the question of state of being as sort of the blue dot on the horizon. That's really what we want. We want a state of being that is whole. We want a state of being that is, has clarity. We want to have, have our dysfunctional past and presence and, 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 and the reality of what sin has done to our inner man. We, we want our state of being healed. Well, what's interesting and right from the get-go we need to observe is that 
it is not the state, uh, it is not the state of being that is in focus here. The state of being we're going to see is a byproduct of something. So often we think that our state of being is the product that we should be wrestling for. So wisdom point number one is, no, it's not. There's something that transcends a concern even for your own state of being. As we've already tipped our hand to it, it's primarily your relationship to the Word of God. And your state of being will issue forth from there. Do you see that a little bit? It's a little bit different. So right off the get-go, we've got to think a little differently. That state of being is a byproduct. And in fact, as we look at it here in verse number one, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the, uh, the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the, scorn, uh, the, the, of, the scoff, of scoffers. We, we begin to learn and understand about this state of being of the righteous. It's righteousness that creates a state of being that heaven views. And can I argue that heaven is truly the only real accurate assessor of states of being? Heaven views the righteous as being in a state of being that is quantified as happy. Happy. So the question right off the get-go is, is, are you righteous? Are you somebody who is righteous as God has defined righteousness? Remember, God is the creator of the universe. Everything that we know has its definition in God. So we don't pursue righteousness outside of God's terms. Our goal is to pursue righteousness within the framework of the creator of everything. Righteousness is not inherent in the human condition. Righteousness is, according to God's word, something that must be derived from another source. You don't have it. And unless you obtain it from another source, you will never have it. And the good news is, God in his infinite wisdom has provided for your righteous standing in his son, Jesus Christ. You can be declared righteous. How does that work? Well, it works as a simple matter of substitution. You get substitution. God doesn't overcomplicate it. At the center of God's command for you to be absolutely perfect and holy, at the very core of that is wrath, if you are not. But guess what is the comforting, accompanying truth to that wrath? Is that he has poured that wrath out on his own son, Jesus Christ. So you do not have to bear the wrath of God. You can, in fact, allow Jesus to have borne that wrath and enjoy the righteousness that the life of Christ has secured for you and me. So it's a simple matter of substitution. 
So if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, heaven says this, your state of being is a happy, happy one. Now, some of you don't look happy. <laughs> right? So, you must be going to the wrong well for your happiness. Can I say that? If you are a believer this morning. And isn't that really what's at issue? You are not allowing the resource of the Word of God to define, to craft, to redirect, to correct your state of being, right? It's really just that simple. God views you as a happy person, happily blessed. So as we understand this state of being, we see for the righteous, it is a blessed, happy state of being. So how do we define happiness? Well, regardless of your definition of happiness, regardless of whether you see obedience to the Bible as perhaps severe or restrictive or cramping your style, wisdom, heaven, the Holy Spirit in all eternity defines happiness as the result of those who are in Christ, and according to the psalm, make God's word the center of their life. One commentator says this, and he put it in such good words, I'm just going to tell you what he said. Happiness for the true believer is wholly controlled by the individual. How's that for a staggering statement? Well, where's Jesus in all of that? Well, folks, Jesus has already done it. He died on the cross. He literally was ribboned, bled and died for you. He, he lived a perfect life, accruing all of the necessary righteousness that you'll never need. Oh, and oh, by the way, if that was enough, he rose again bodily from the dead. So do all those things that Pastor Tim is trying to get us to understand about our union in Christ, that we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That's what we should be pursuing. So it is wholly controllable on the north side of salvation by each and every one of us as we walk in the spirit and as we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It results from a believing heart and mind that deliberately progressively is committed to a certain pattern of thinking and a certain way of life. Of course, governed by God's, excuse me, by God's teaching here in the Old Testament and by Jesus' teaching in the church in the New Testament as it builds upon that. In fact, simply put, it's being a good disciple of Jesus. Another trans commentator said this, it is very important and he warns us not to confuse happiness with pleasure. Pleasure is self-centered, transient, agreeable sensations to the emotions. They are instinctive responses to stimuli that gratifies the senses. They're transitory. They come and they go. Pleasure ought not to be our goal. The state of being of happiness ought to be, ought to be. So not only is it a, a blessed, happy state, we see in this verse that it's a rather lonely state. How blessed is the what? The man. This is singular. 
It's contrasted to the wicked as a class. It, it, it echoes the reality in the book of Matthew where Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow. The way is narrow that leads to life, a state of being that can be quantified as he or she is living the life. life. And there are few that be who find it. So it's a lonely place. I would argue sometimes even within the confines of the church as the church tends to lose her way and, and, and walks into different sources trying to find a sense of purpose and a sense of well-being. It's the rare group of people who understand that a sense of well-being, a sense of purpose has only one singular source. And it's exclusive of all others. And that is the Bible. And the degree to which you understand and apply the Word of God is the degree to which your state of being um, apart from any physiological issues, caveat, <laughs> is the degree to which your state of being will thrive progressively. Right? That's what God longs for. So it's a lonely state. Some of you have felt that. You've been away from Grace Church of Mentor. and You know, you can even walk into a church sometimes and feel like, man, I'm kind of the only one. What's going on? You know, I'm, you know it seems like it's, if, you, if you walk by somebody and they say, how are you doing? Doing really fine. They say, oh, that can't be true. Tell me what's really going on. Well, the Bible says, I am in a blessed, happy place. Ah, no, no. Well, no, that is my state of being. Now, we could talk about all the, the details that my disciples and I are working on to, to progressively move into that state of being. I mean, if you want me to tell you all of that, but that's not where the joy is. That's where sort of the hard work and bringing my will in conformity to what God's commands say. That's the hard work of life. And yeah, if you need some, I can tell you a little bit about that. So yeah, here it is, you know. Here's what I'm working on right now, spiritually. So, so, but, but it is okay. I am righteous, so heaven views me as being in a blessed state. It's okay to say that, people. It's okay. Because you are, from heaven's perspective. You are blessed. Remember, there's no verb in that first little, it's all, it's, it's, it's just the, it's just the uh, observation of heaven. How blessed is the man who finds himself righteous in doing these things. So it's a blessed, happy state. It's a lonely state. Let her see here, it's a disciplined state. A disciplined state. Not like, turn you over my knee and you get spankings. I don't know, I got spankings. I don't know, that's not cool anymore. I'm not even going to admit the fact that I spanked my sons because this is on, but I might have. <laughs> you know, I know there's lawyers probably watching. I may or may not have. You know how that is. So I don't hear any amens out there from Nathan and, <laughs> and Lou. Is see here? I thought I saw, I saw Alyssa anyway. There's Nathan. 
ducking down underneath. No amens out there and stuff. So, um, but discipline. So we're not necessarily talking about sort of that, you know, that corporal punishment-y kind of thing that's necessary perhaps along the discipleship pathway. Um, but we're talking about uh, more uh, setting in, in, in place in our life habits, choices that lead to habits and habits that will transform character underneath the auspices of the truth of the word of God. So other than the miracle of salvation of a soul, resolution for the real difficult concerns in life, can I say this and please write this down, are not found in miracles. Can we get over that? Can we just settle that? By this time in the nation of Israel's history, here, what we're talking about in Psalm 1, she had had her era of miracles come and go. It was no longer wise for them to wait around and hope that manna falls from heaven. And it was no longer wise for them to hope that Red Seas would part out in front of them. That era was over. That had had its place, for sure, and we're thankful for that. But faith now was to be focused in a different direction. The wisdom that this psalm teaches is that the focus of faith was to yearn, yearn for the character to discipline myself to these habits of righteous living that the Word of God has commanded me to. It is in these habits that are found as a byproduct, the happy state. Paul echoes the same idea in his command to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. In pointing out these things, Paul says to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on what? Here it is. On the words of faith, the Bible, and the sound doctrine, the Bible, which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Folks, if you're looking for a miracle, you're in the wrong dispensation. Bless your heart, you know? You're like that back to the future kind of guy who, crazy scientist, he always, he's always in the wrong time, you know? And all kinds of things would happen because he didn't know how to handle that time. And don't be in the wrong time. You know, pray for the miracle of salvation. God is saving you. Sanctification. But, but you know, you, you don't, oh, God, if I could just have a miracle here, if I could just get that, win the lottery, or if I could just, you know, if I promise, God, I promise that if you allow me to get this promotion, I will. God has, Jesus has no time for that. that, that, that that's not how church men and women think. That, that's all wrong dispensation. That, that, remember, who did that? That was Gideon. Remember Gideon? His fleece. Gideon was perfectly in line putting out his fleece. Because they, they couldn't determine the will of God like you and I. You know, they needed a, the lodestones of the Urim and the Thummim. You know, the judges, by the way, is a time when every man's doing everything that's right in their own eyes. It's a crazy time, even in the nation of Israel. And what, what, what crazier thing to do than to put out a little lamb's fleece and hope that sometimes it's wet and sometimes it's dry. That's, we, we ought to look at that and we ought to say, that's, that's not us. That's just not us. We have God's word, folks. This is it. Discipline yourself unto godliness. Stop looking for miracles. If you're born again, you have the miracle. 
You have the primary miracle, all you need. And now you just have to do the rest of your life. You have to look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, God's word, I know I'm wrong again, show me where. And it's just like, you know, it's like we were talking uh, the, the epistles. You know, uh, for example, uh, my Sunday school, Life in the Middle, we're going through the book of Ephesians. And we just observed generally, you know, at the end of the book, you got all these applications. Love your wife, don't make your kids mad. You know, servants, follow your bosses and all this stuff. And that's where we always fail. And our tendency is then to get into this first person personal pronoun thinking, I, me, my, I'm terrible, I'm horrible. But we observe the idea that if you fail at the end of the book, you go to the beginning of the book. And in the beginning of the book, we read nothing about Kent Hobie. We read everything about Jesus and how he has given everything to Kent Hobie that he needs. He has blessed him with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. What do you, you mean this isn't about me? No, this is about Jesus, and you have everything you need to change, so get busy about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. So you want your state of being to be happy. Yes, it's going to be a little bit lonely. You're not going to be a class of people. Uh, but it does need to be disciplined. Uh, the psalmist encourages us to discipline. Uh, there, there's a negative aspect of this discipline. He says that one must long for the God-given character to reject the lifestyle of the wicked. That's the, in verse number one, these three uh, walk, sit, stand. We've got to realize that that no longer is the fountainhead. Uh, the Net Bible, which is a great online resource that helps with the Hebrew here. It talks about the fact that these verbs are in an imperfect way. They're in an in, or they're, uh, I'm sorry, they're a perfect verbal form, which helps us understand that uh, we don't want this to be our characteristic behavior. Okay? We are not characteristically walking into the world longing for their counsel, walking in their path habitually doing what they do, or sitting among scoffers constantly, okay? So it's not that we go like a monk, you know, and run to our monastery and lock the door. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying the progressive habitual habits of your life walk out of a system that's controlled by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life and walks into the commands of the Word of God. The commands of the Word of God. So negatively, we have to discipline ourselves to uh, reject the lifestyle of the wicked. Uh, this is a, a sequential walk-sit-stand. It does envision a progression from casual association with the wicked to complete identification with them. Uh, not in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, these are people who don't put their trust in God and they don't even fear God. They, they have no interest in God whatsoever. The path of sinners, sinners here are sort of a less villainous uh, uh, than the wicked. This is one who misses the mark. Uh, he's a wayward person who doesn't know Jesus. And they don't do this necessarily willfully, but they miss the mark as an inevitable byproduct of their human unredeemed condition. They have habitual moral blunders. 
and their lot and sinning is a chronic condition. The seed of the scoffers, scoffers is a little bit stronger word. These are the mockers or the cynics. They poke fun at morality. They poke fun at the fact that, you know, nobody, everybody is a hypocrite. Everybody has sinned. They love that reality. They love it. And they scoff at it. And they mock it. You know. We kind of live in a day and age of scoffers, don't we? I mean, if you try to be holy, try to stand, do something righteous. It, because you can't do it absolutely all the time, perfectly, you get scoffed at. And you get mocked. Teenagers, you know. <laughs> and, and all of us, we, we, we bear under that weight. Well, just know we're all there. Keep trying. Don't, don't. Don't sit in the seat of the scoffer. Don't be influenced by the scoffer. Keep working. Keep moving. Keep pressing. And no, we understand you're not going to do it perfectly. We get that. We get that. That's okay. That's okay. Keep being righteous. Keep pursuing holiness. Perfection. By God's grace, morally so. That's what we do. Wow. So a happy, a happy state, then, is possessed by those who are engaged in this dynamic process. It's a process of progressively moving out of the council, out of the paths, out of the seats of the wicked, scoffers and sinners, into the council of what? The Word of God and those who embrace it. It's a positive. There's a positive side to the discipline. One must long for the God-given character to delight in the law of the Lord and demonstrate it by meditating on it day and night. To delight in means to allow it to shape my conduct. Your state will not be a happy one if the Bible is only the concern of your mind and not your behavior. A happy state is the byproduct of delighting in the Word of God. This is not a mere mental exercise. We're not here to tickle your intellect. The Word of God is here to change your life, to put you in a happy state of being. That's what it's here for. Meditate here is an interesting Hebrew word. It is an imperfect form, verbal form. It draws attention to, again, characteristic behavior. Even though it's going to say night and day, that's, that's, more, that's more hyperbole. The idea is do it as often as you possibly can. It is a, it's in a, it's in a, a meaning range of, of, that has a verbal component. So this is not the mystical sitting around contemplation of, hmm, what do I think about what I just read? Do I think it's true? Do I really think I should make it a part of my life? Is it really reasonable? You know, that's not this word. That's not meditation. Meditation, in fact, has this verbal component. In other words, it simply repeats what the Word of God says and then seeks to obey it. That's what this meditation is. It, 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 it has that unidirectional reality. So not only is it a disciplined state, positively and negatively, but it's a pictured state. Here the picture is a tree. He is like a tree. He or she is like a tree. Your state of being, because it's happy, it can be compared to a tree that has a strong root system because of the rich water supply of the Word of God. You have leaves and you produce fruit in an appropriate season. People look at you and say, man, are you normal? Man. Are you normally productive? You're not a superhuman. Your, 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 your roots are being fed by the word of God 
And what you do, you're doing it in due season. You know, and it's the whole tree. You're not walking around, you know, like this with this huge bicep. Yeah, I work out. You know, that's not real helpful. You know, what you want to do is you want to, the whole body work out, right? And that's what we have. So secondly, this morning, uh, the psalmist examines the state of being of the wicked. Uh, we see here, verse number four, it is the not-so state. You know, uh, Missourians tell us that you need to show me, right? The Missouri is the show-me state. Well, as a play on words here this morning, the wicked are known as the not-so state. They're just not so. They have no lasting root, they have no lasting leaves, and they have no lasting real fruit. It's just not so. Their state of being cannot be assessed by heaven as being happy. They just cannot. They too have a pictured state, but unfortunately the picture is not a very pleasant one. They're like chaff. They're transitory. They're, they're vain. They're, 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 they're without eternal value and merit because they, they, they will not last. Specifically, Thirdly, they have a judge state in the judgment. They cannot stand. They will not stand in judgment. They will not be found in the assembly of the righteous. And as a result, they will perish. They will perish. They will perish. Now, the point of the psalm is not to spend a whole lot of time on the wicked, so I'm not going to do it. The point of the psalm is to spend the majority amount of time on the righteous, in the state of being that is happy. Uh, but we have the wicked listed and doesn't mean that the psalmist is not concerned or interested in the wicked. The psalmist, again, is just making a, a point of assessment. And he's teaching us that our well-being is not an end in itself. It is the byproduct of the fact either you are righteous in Christ or you're not. That's it. So the question is a simple one this morning, as, as uh, verse number six, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's really the question. And this is the same question in the New Testament. Uh, or, uh, that's the statement. The question could be worded, does the Lord know me? The same question is in the New Testament where, where, where the warning is, depart from me for I never knew you. The question isn't not so much do I know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know me? Have I embraced righteousness on his terms? Or am I just making some false claim to knowing him? That is, at best, built upon my own conceptions and hopes and dreams. Or, or do I have the word of God that has clearly told me that, yes, Jesus knows me. I know he does. Because this is how he said in his word, he knows people. And that's the only salient question in all eternity. So when you get to heaven, don't say, Jesus, I know you, I know you, I know you. When you get to heaven, say, Jesus, I know that you know me. And here are the verses that you gave me. And here's what I did in response to those verses. I put my faith and trust alone in your saving grace. So Jesus, because you cannot lie, take that with you to heaven. I have put my faith and trust in your word. You're not putting your faith and trust. You haven't met Jesus yet. 
All you got is Jesus' word. So you better put your faith and trust in that. I have a feeling Jesus is going to be of a completely different, you know, than the kind of we conjure up in our minds. <laughs> so I would just trust his word in those moments. Proclaim his word. Back to him. He loves that. He loves his word. <laughs> so much. So does Jesus know you? This Hebrew word is so much more rich than we use in English. It carries with it emotional ties, empathy, intimacy, mutuality, responsibility on both sides. Are you part of the not-so state of the wicked or are you in the blessedness state known by the Lord himself? It is unmistakably clear that it is what you are currently doing with God's word right now in your life that will determine your state. God's word concerning who he is, who you are, and what he has said for you to do in relationship to those big themes. For the, those of you that are yet to be righteous, who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's only simply one thing you need to do. Run to Christ. Understand what God's word says to you to do and do it. And it's, you'll find it's not so much of a do, it's a believe. Repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your eternal destiny. Recognize that his word, as he has said it, is the basis of your eternal destiny and, in fact, your well-being. If you continue to re reject Jesus, you will continue to have no hope in the question of your well-being. Just mark that down. And in five years, we'll talk about it. And we will talk about how what I have said here tonight, because it's truth in the Word of God, it will happen. Your life will unravel. Your soul will not be healed. You will continue to rip and to shred everything on the inner man until it's almost unrecognizable as being anything near what God intended you to be. And it's painful, and it's awful, and it's horrific, but go ahead. But know that Grace Church of Mentor stands here by God's grace in this generation and in multiple generations to come to be a lighthouse to you. So when you decide that you've had enough, by God's grace we'll be here. And Jesus' word will still be here. And there will still be hope for you. Never forget that. Mark that down. As long as you're living in this earth. For those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, your state is a happy one as you progressively delight in God's word. There are so many counterfeit conceptions of happiness. God, the inventor of happiness, knows happiness when he sees it. That's profound. You can write that down. It is the property of those who progressively know and seek to obey the word of God. If you continue to see God's word as burdensome, a yoke that is not easy rather than light, if the command to be holy, for I am holy, is austere and restrictive to you, you have yet to grasp what true happiness is. May God open up our eyes. Uh, I've been talking with uh, Sharon Baddick a little bit about the ladies' study. Ladies, she's teaching you to be what? Simply? And what's the center of being simply blessed? It's the word of God. You have a voice of reason in Sharon Badig. And I, you know, you know, and Sharon, you're a very brilliant woman. But this isn't very brilliant. <laughs> you know, all she's trying to do is say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Stop playing games with God's word. 
Be serious about it. You know, if you have, a, I don't know if, oh, look at this cool thing. Wow, I just so happen to have one in my Bible. Boy, it's a path of discipleship. And oh, look, everything's about the Bible. Wow. I hope you have one of these. And you've found that you know where you're at in the pathway and you know where you're headed with your discipler. You've got it. This is it. This is it. This is, we could have put well-being at the front, okay? So GLBI classes, there you go. How's about there? I got to get my little nick in there, right? God, GLBI will teach you more of God's word. So I think it's accurate to say when you're in a deep council with somebody and they're coming to you and they're about ready to go off the deep end, what's a simple question you can ask them? What did you read in your today? And I guarantee what you'll hear is, uh, 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 uh. That's what you're going to hear. I guarantee it. You're not going to hear somebody, you know, uh, explain some deep And you say, well, pastor, that's way too simple. Aren't we so much more complex? Well, I'm sure we are. But Psalm 1 says no. I, and I don't know what else to tell you. Except delight in the law of the word of God. All right?